and welcome to Note Up, Note Up 77, recorded live at Camp JS4 in Springbrook, Australia. Today's show is sponsored by Andet, CodeShip, and Lift Security. Let's get into it. Welcome to Node Down, a special edition of Node Up at Camp JS in sunny Springbrook on the hinterland of the Gold Coast in Queensland. We're not far from Brisbane. Mostly Australians here, but we have a bunch of international visitors and people that flew out just for the event. We've got about 120 people here. Everyone want to say, hey! Hey! Yeah, there's lots of people. Say, hey, if you are from overseas. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you guys are excited to be here. <laughs> so we have a panel here today, mostly Australians with one international visitor, and we're going to talk about testing. Now, on our panel, I'd like them to introduce themselves. First of all, we have Damon Ullman. Do you want to tell us about yourself and what your interest in testing is? Thanks, Rod. So Damon, working, currently working on WebRTC um, pretty much full-time on open source library in that space. It's a real eye-opener from a testing perspective and I guess, you know, looking to simulate, you know, match what people's experiences are in the real world in a, in a test and, and a controlled environment so I can sort of get a picture of what's going on. A lot of moving parts and, and really I've found that what we've got currently isn't up to the task. Well, the things that we've got, we, we need more of them. So I guess that's, that's where I'm coming from. And next on our panel, we have Torsten. Tell us a bit about yourself and your interest in testing in particular. So, yeah, I'm Torsten. I work for NodeSource, have been working with Node for quite a bit. And my approach to testing is that you need to pretty much test all your code that runs while your module is being used. And that's especially important when you have small modules and you are open to uh, like pull requests. And I guess we're going to get to that in, in, in detail. And that's pretty much it. Okay. And Tim, I think most people know Tim, but introduce yourself and what's your interest in testing? Mm. Hello, I'm Tim. Uh, work for NodeSource. Made the camp JS. My interest in testing is I can't remember everything that's going on in my programs. So I need to basically write it down. And a good way to write it down is in tests. And I also like it if other people write down what they're doing in their programs so that I can understand what they were thinking and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I sort of, I see test as like a documentation sort of thing and, you know, essential to understanding what a piece of software does. So, And lastly on our panel, we have Keith Pitt. Do you want to tell us about yourself and your interest in testing? Yeah, so I'm Keith. I'm actually not a Node programmer. I actually do a lot of Rails. I just do some JavaScript, but I don't do any really Node. I did Node when it first came out, and I, I think as most people did, you know, some people do to-do like apps. I did a IRC server as my first Node project, and I started writing tests for it, and then gave up <laughs> because I just didn't know how to do uh, asynchronous tests. But I do Rails. I'm passionate about testing so much that I wrote a CI tool called Buildbox, and now that's my full-time job running Buildbox. So I see a lot of tests, and tests get me quite excited, and some days they make me quite rage. So it's really good to have a non-JavaScript on the panel for extra perspective. Okay, let's take a quick break for our first sponsor. I'd like to give a shout out to Andyet. Starting today, Andyet's WebRTC experts will be offering three new consulting packages to teams in need or want of serious development boost. 
They're looking to round out the year by helping your team ship something epic and innovative in the WebRTC space. Whether you're looking for help developing a new video or a chat feature, a platform you can run your own hardware using open source components, or just put a killer custom user interface on top of what you're building, you'll find what you need with the Anyet team. For more information, head over to Anyet slash WebRTC and be sure to follow them on Twitter at Anyet, A-N-D-Y-E-T. This is a broad topic that spans almost the history of computing. Doing automated tests is a relatively recent phenomenon, but we all recognize the value of having structures around our code to verify their correctness. So on that topic, what are some of the reasons that you guys are passionate about why we test? What, what, is, what are the reasons that we test? Tim touched on the documentation side. What, what are the other reasons that we test our code? Well, I personally test my code because I don't want to be afraid of a pull request. So, like, I have tons of modules out there. Some of the times I don't even remember what they do anymore. And if I get a pull request with some improvement, I kind of want to be, you know, like, positive that nothing broke. I don't want to be, like, afraid of getting pull requests because now I have to, you know, hand check that whatever the person added or fixed doesn't break something else. And so that's basically what I use as a criteria to write my tests. They don't have to be super granular or anything like that. You know, they can just basically test some output for particular inputs. And if that's a huge string, then I'll just paste it into my tests. I'm fine with that. As long as I know that test would break if some functionality would break that, that is kind of needed by that module. So that's my way of looking at tests at this point. I've gone through lots of phases. I was like a BDD fan and all the stuff. I drank all the Kool-Aid and then spit it back out. And now that's my criteria. Keith, you started a business around testing. Yeah. What, what, why, like, what is it that led you to be so passionate to make a business out of it? Well, it's less about testing and more generally about software delivery. Oh, okay, point out. Okay, cool. Uh, more about just software delivery in general. I'm really passionate about software delivery. And, and testing is a big part of that. It's, it's more or less the first part. I'm a big believer in continuous deployment. And for those not quite sure what that is, it means that once, once your master branch is green or the test pass, it's automatically deployed to production, which is a bit scary for some people, but it's, I think it's the way that software delivery should be done. And if you think of testing as part of the deploy process, so it's not this separate thing. Like if you do, I don't know how you do deploys in Node. In, in Ruby, it's cap deploy. Imagine if your tests were part of the cap deploy script. It really changes how you approach your testing. And it becomes more about, you know, you start testing more to gain confidence. Like, uh, I'm scared of this part of the code base because it constantly changes. This is the billing part. This is the bit that adds up all the the dollars in my shopping cart. I should probably make sure they add up to the right number and don't equal like a different currency at the end. So I usually just write tests just for confidence. I think that's pretty much exactly what Torsten said. Yeah, and I just said it uh, a different, different way. No, I wasn't trying to <laughs> I, I think, disparage I think, what you were yeah. saying. Yeah. I think what Torsten was saying is a little different, and I, I think those are very two different approaches because I think I recognise more with what Torsten was saying about, and it comes into that sort of, not one, not being afraid of people making pull requests or, or changes to, or improvements to, to things that you've written, but also just on the fact that you know, Keith's talking about a product, and, and you're right, there is a level of similarity because but Keith's, Keith's saying from a product deployment perspective there, there's obviously a need for reliance. And I, I think, like, I've, I've really stepped back from writing much product at all. I, I would say the last app I wrote was probably five years ago. But the amount of 
things that have been written, not necessarily directly on, on my code, but certainly now with the RTCIO stuff, a lot of people just at work and then, then slightly more broadly, you know, it's one thing to be able to test something that, that does math. It's another thing to be able to test something that, that's incredibly complicated. And, it, it, like, it really scares you. Like, you know, you basically... I don't, know, really, like, I don't really feel like I'm going to look like an idiot, but I hate for someone to build an app and then to be like, oh, man, you can't trust that. It doesn't, doesn't work. And I think one of the things that, that we have to strive to do, as, as certainly people who provide packages, and, and is to give some sort of assurance of trust to, to you know, basically say, you, you can use this, which, which is a whole other conversation. How, how do we trust you know, what we're using? But I think tests form a big part of that for someone who's a, who's a consumer, essentially, of, of a package. There's different levels of testing. There's different types of testing, but there's different levels as well when we're t even talking about like unit tests, because you guys have already split it up in terms of deployment versus just libraries. And I think Damon, you and Torsten were on the same topic there, we're talking about testing your own libraries so that you have the confidence to release them, to accept changes to them. And Keith, you're talking about the final product where it all comes together and you have to verify the correctness of the whole system. What are the different types of testing that you can do and what makes them a different process? Like what, what, what sets them apart as, as discrete kinds of tests? Traditionally, people think about slow tests and fast tests and high-level tests and low-level tests or, you know, integration tests and unit tests. So it's kind of very similar things, in my opinion. And so integration tests are basically testing your whole stack, kind of making sure that everything works together versus unit tests, testing just one part of, of the code, and they can get a little more in detail about, uh, like to say, just a function. One thing that I realized about this whole thing is that these traditions come kind of from... from um, from kind of the, the history, when people were writing big Java apps or big .NET apps, and the tests took a long time to run. And therefore, they had to basically make sure the tests are first fast and, and that they kind of can only run certain tests all the time and, and some other tests only, like, let's say, nightly. But in Node.js world, since we have these small modules, all these things don't really, they are not really a problem anymore. So. As far as I'm concerned, we don't even have to divide like this clearly anymore between unit tests and integration tests. I basically don't even think about it that way anymore. As I said, I just think about inputs and outputs. I'm testing my API, the inputs, the outputs. In a way, you could say I'm test doing unit tests because I'm testing the small module that will be used maybe as part of a bigger application. But I think a lot of complexities that people go through to kind of separate these tests out and make sure them like one one example would be a library called vows that people had that was trying to kind of run all your tests in parallel to gain a few seconds but probably added hours of grueling to your development process because you couldn't figure out how to set up your context correctly or, and so on. And all these things, we, in my opinion, if you write small enough modules, you don't really need them. You don't have to worry about your tests running fast because they're only taking a second any, anyway, right? So what, what's the difference between 1.1 and 1.2 seconds? So that's my take on it. We don't have to worry about it that much anymore. I think both you and Damon are coming at it from a, yeah, like a, a module development yeah. perspective. So it gets a lot more hairy once you start you know, combining modules and building applications. And so I, well, I guess that's where the, um, you know, that's your integration testing stuff. I mean, I, I kind of do the same thing with a lot of my projects. I try to just you know, keep the tests light and only around the smaller pieces. So, because if you've got kind of like 
tests all through the layers, the, the top level tests. Well, they're usually just too hard to do, actually. That's more of the issue. And I guess that is one of the, the reasons why I wanted to chat with both Damon and Keith to get their ideas about um, you know, how do you do an, you know, integration testing in an easy way. Yeah, testing is really hard. I remember the first test that I wrote, I was going for a job and they were like, you, you need to learn RSpec, and RSpec is one of the more popular Ruby testing libraries. And I remember trying to write my first test, and, and the example was like taking a string and uppercase and calling downcase on it, and the result of calling downcase should equal the downcase version. Like it's a pretty, it's, it's an input-output example. You put in this string and it should come out all downcase. And that case is really simple, but it gets really hard when it's, did this user save to the database? And you start changing your code quite rapidly. You start writing code that becomes very much input and output. Before that, I used to write these quite long methods, and then I realized very quickly I couldn't test these really long methods. So my first phase of testing was writing exceptions. I assume in Node.js you've got the ability to test whether or not a method was called on an object. Uh, Maybe? No? Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. You can. They're like spies, I think, in Jasmine. I think that's what they're called. Yeah. They tend to not be used so much, though. Oh, let's, let's, let's have more discussion about that in a second. But oh, yeah. yeah. No, go but yeah, so I started, um, my first phase of testing was just mocking everything. Like, uh, yeah, I called user.save, but at the end of the day, like, what am I actually testing? My whole lookout on this thing just changed to, all right, so what am I actually testing here? Am I testing if a user saved to the database, or did I test if I called user.save, and which one is more valuable? So when you start having these complex layering of libraries to applications, or libraries, frameworks, applications, um, all the way up, it does start to get more complicated as you move up. So libraries, small modules, are very much input-output, very much you can measure the side effects very easily. It's when you start piecing them together that you start getting the complex interactions like the you know, saving things for the database. And that traditionally is where uh, mocks, stubs, and spies come in, which is that, that level slightly up from plain unit testing. What do you think the prevailing opinion in Node is of mocks, spies, and stubs? Because I sometimes get the impression that these things are kind of shunned. I think that's probably fair, Rod. Look, I mean, it's interesting comparing the way that I test with, with say, the way my younger brother tests. Who's, who's a, was, he's now Node full-time, but he, he was Java for a long time. And he certainly embraces spies, mocks, and stubs a lot more than I do. I, I tend to just say, well, look, I think it becomes an exercise in, especially when we're encouraged, and, and once you start to get into the habit of breaking things into smaller pieces, you try to remove the need for the, for the spy or the mock or the stub so that what's being tested, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, so you're breaking them into small pieces. That's about yeah. testing the small pieces, but what about when you start putting them together? So, and, and that, that's interesting, and I guess, you know, drawing on my, and, and, and basically it's, if I take away the existing terminology that we have, you know, I understand why it's there, but, but sometimes, you know, mocking, what, what tends to happen is, is something that's mocked is essentially a, a very oversimplified representation of what is the real world. And I think that's where people fall into a false sense of security. Oh, I had mocks in there and I tested something. You know, this thing did call this thing and it would have done this. But, you know, a good example is right through all of my stuff. There's, uh, messaging is a big component of WebRTC. So basically establishing connections between two things. So one of the things that I do when dealing with that is, is not mock it, but basically create just a, a purely in-messaging method for, for signaling. And, and that's right through all the testing. So all, all the testing uses a lot of this stuff. But it became very clear very quickly 
that that was not representative of real world. Like it didn't represent a WebSocket connection or whatever else that I wanted to use. So very quickly I ended up having to write, you know, make sure the WebSocket server was really there because even mocking it, you know, trying to introduce random delay and, and various things were, were just not real world enough. So I, I think, you know, in my case it's pretty simple. Running a WebSocket server and actually simulating some sockets is, is not hard you know, or creating real sockets that are really doing what they're meant to do. When it does get to the level of you, you have to have a full DB that, and you're testing to see if that result has actually happened, I think that's really tough. And, and to be honest, that's one of the, why, the reasons that I probably do shy away from application development now because I'm, I'm like, this, is, this feels like it's, it's very difficult to control. So I, I do what I know I can do well and I know what I can test well, I guess, too, is, is one of the things that, that I stick to. Uh, for me, like, I completely ditched any mocking, stubbing stuff. As soon as I had an app deployed into production which had passing tests but failed in production because my mocks mocked out the thing which was broken because, you know, I was using, I can't even remember what the scenario was, but I was using some library and it, it didn't like the way, I, oh, it's like some database or something, and it didn't like uh, the way I'd done something, but my mock database was quite happy to deal with it and, you know, deploy an app, it's broken. So I, should, I really don't see a huge amount of value in mocks unless you're doing something that's super slow. Yeah, because yeah. the other thing with, with mocks is that they hide away, you, you might implement a, you know, a dummy version of something, but that something might change later and you, again, you won't capture that. Uh, a good way to f figure out whether something, you know, some weird details which you didn't expect to change, change is by you know, just testing as much as you can. I mean, because that's the other thing with tests is like, you get a lot of value out of capturing things. I mean, that, I mean that's that the whole point is that you want to be capturing things which you didn't expect to happen. And, you know, if you mock something out, you're sort of r removing a whole bunch of possibilities. And because it's usually somebody else's code as well. So if it's not your code, you've got a lot less control over it. And then you're just like smoothing over the details. I don't know, it just doesn't seem like a very good practice to me. I kind of agree with Tim. I wouldn't probably go as extreme as shunning, mocking altogether. Uh, not altogether. You know, I, I can accept a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, but it, I think it helps to look a little bit at the history where kind of this whole idea of mocking and so came from. As far as I understand, in the beginning, there was kind of like this Kent Beck unit testing style where basically you would assume you're doing a bottom-up development, meaning that everything you need on the bottom is already there and tested before you write something that uses it, right? And then obviously in your tests, you could then use, you know, use the thing because you already implemented it. Unfortunately, that had, among the fact that probably top-down development is a better idea, that had the, the, the result that, you know, sometimes your tests of a module B that uses A and C would break just because C is broken, which is probably not the best idea. And so people started saying, okay, we want, you know, behavior-driven development or whatever, and we want to do top-down development, and we want to kind of like, you know, simulate that what we need is already there, and so we're going to write mocks, and then we're going to write tests that use these mocks in order to assume that our, the library or the module we're currently working on works, right? And as Tim said, though, that has a problem that later on the real thing may change, and our mock may not, and so the mock actually shows a different behavior, uh, which then our tests pass, although they should fail. The big plus here, though, is that 
you really develop very good APIs because you can go top-down development. But in JavaScript and in Node, you don't necessarily need to write a mock every time because you can easily just write a, like a stuff from hand that you're going to remove later. And, and I see this a lot in, in when, I, when I'm writing code. You know, I'm starting to write a module and I realized that I need some other feature that's not there yet. And I started actually writing it maybe in that folder, and before I know it, I already pull it out, and I publish a new module that just does that, and it's very well tested. And then my code that I actually originally worked on will use that module. So I still am, am top-down, but I kind of maybe fill in the blanks a little sooner than is traditionally done. Also, we have to realize that mocking and stubbing is a little more important in languages where it's actually hard to just write a simple throwaway stub, right? Like just implement like some module export thing that does exactly what your test would need, right? And, but that's, right, yeah, as I just said, it's not as, as, as needed in, in JavaScript anymore. So we have to kind of, you know, kind of separate ourselves from, from these traditions that may, may not apply. I myself actually wrote a module called ProxyQuire, which is designed to allow you to mock things. The reason mainly is that I came from languages that had dependency injection. So I was used to basically write, write mocks for everything. In my tests, I would pass mocks, and I would just test that one class or whatever, and then I would wire it all together with dependency injection container thing. But in, in Node, we have actually require, which is kind of like a service locator, so you don't want to have dependency injection on top of that. So I figured you can just, you know, if you can just figure out how to fool the service locator into getting something else, like you can, if you require foo, you're actually getting a stub, that would help. So that's why I wrote ProxyQuire. So I agree that in some cases you may still need it, like, like Tim says. Especially, though, if you want to separate yourself from uh, external third-party resources that may not be available in your tests. Like if you're pinging, if your app is like pinging t the Twitter API or, or using it, you definitely don't want to do that in your tests. They're probably going to shut you down because you exceed the API limit. That's about side effects though, isn't it? So that's one of the places where mocks is important, is where you exactly. can't avoid side effects. Right. I actually don't think, like I was going to bring that up, I feel like mocking is generally not the right tool to choose. I don't think it's the first tool you should choose. And external service is something that you would usually think to pick up a mock for. Let's say I've got a credit card gateway. Here's a great example. Credit card gateway, and you need to charge a credit card. Now, you could create a stub for the library, and you would force it to return a response. So here's a mock of the credit card gateway. Any charge I make going forward will return a success or a failure. But there are other ways to solve that problem. In the Ruby world, we've solved it with a gem called VCR. Yeah. And what VCR does is it actually records any HTTP interaction out of your application. And the next time your test calls it, it actually plays it back to you. And you can set rules around when it should get re-recorded. So if, if their API changes, it'll just refresh you know, that, that playback. So in that case, you can still get the performance of a mock and the confidence that if, if they change it, you'll know that it breaks. So, but that is a stub, it's except that it self-updates. That's oh, what he's saying, it's, right? It, yeah, it's absolutely. But it's, it's a slightly more real stub than you, like, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a same sort of mock, but it's not a programmatic one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a halfway point. It's a half mock. Yeah, you yeah. get the best of both worlds. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And do, I, do we have anything like that in Node? You guys know? I've seen something that uh, you, you can record. I can't remember the name. Uh, we can probably put it in the show notes if we find it. Yeah. There is some, some, some module that allows you to record real-time data or like production data or whatever and then replay it. It's also important, uh, it may not actually be a Node tool, but it's also, I think it was written in Go. 
<laughs> it's also important if you have a certain scenario that, that causes your servers to crash and you can't reproduce it, you actually have to record the data that led there and then you can actually rerun the exact same requests to reproduce it. So that's what that's probably also useful. So we don't, we, I don't want to dwell too much on this topic because it is, it, I think there's also a division in, uh, in styles that front-end JavaScripters uh, versus back-enders adopt with spies and mocks. You'll see a lot more of it in front-end code than in Node, and possibly that's a cultural thing from the back end. Just one thing before we wrap up this section. Um, I wanted to ask about, and Tim, you might be a good one to start this, is about the issue of, of Semver ranges and trust. The Node ecosystem is made up of very small modules, and we have this implicit trust between authors that I use your module, I trust that you are, it is well tested, you're going to follow Semver, therefore I can put a range in, I don't need to test your code in my code, I'll just assume it works. Is that a real, a real concern in Node, or is it something that we've worked out pretty well? <laughs> Keeping in mind, this is not a Semver show. Yeah, no. In an ideal world, it doesn't happen. But it, I mean, it, it's it's tricky. I mean, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to test somebody else's code, but but you do. And like, people make mistakes. You know, Semver, Sem, you know, people are only human. I mean, they, they, I don't think there's any real way to protect yourself against you know other people's code breaking. But you know, may, maybe there's like a, a trade-off you're making there that you've just got their code, you've downloaded it off npm for free. Good work. I mean, you know, so what? They break it occasionally. That's the price you pay for you're getting a free thing off the internet. So is that a good enough answer? No, it's not a good enough answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, actually, you can easily actually mitigate that, right? Because you can, you can, you you, you decide which module you use, right? Yeah, yeah. And and. Yes, it's all free, but it's actually your job to select the right one. And usually there are at least like five different ways of doing the same thing. And, and we, we have overlapped our modules because we didn't find each other's modules, so now there are two. Well, because your modules have weird names. Better names, yes. <laughs> uh, so one thing to check for, if you go to a GitHub repo and there's no testing badge on there, move on, right? Like you want that module to prove to you at that point in time that it's working, right? So, so if there's like a Travis CI badge on there, I know that at that moment in time, the tests are passing, right? That means, and also that badge will be there, so most likely that person will keep those tests passing because a red Travis B CI badge looks really bad. Also, look in the test folder that there are actually tests in there, right? And that they're not like I've heard from some people, just the tests that, make sure I can require the module. <laughs> that's, that's one test, right? But that's a good test, but that's not enough. So, so make sure of that. So, so you, it's your responsibility to make, to make sure that the people that you're actually getting code from write good code and, and maintain it properly. And, and after a while, you actually will notice some names or GitHub handles that, that you can trust. I actually update the dependencies of my projects every single day. The first thing I do in the morning is I type bundle update in Ruby, it's bundle, and I, I commit it to GitHub with a commit message of bundle update party. Sometimes I have bundle update Tuesdays, bundle update Wednesdays, and emojis often appear. And because I do continuous deployment, oh, I can see like you got the eyes just looking at me, you're crazy. But because I have continuous deployment and I trust my tests, I, like, I do a lot of integration testing because I find that I trust more with integration tests than with mocks. I rarely use mocks, but we're over that subject. And because I, I commit and push to production every single morning, I know exactly 
which, if, if something does break, I know exactly which dependencies was the problem, instead of like holding yeah. off oh. for ages and like, oh, which of the 100 things that I update broke? You know, well, that's why I update every single day. So, I mean, it's one thing to say you, you trust your tests. And I, I always trust my tests to the point until they fail and, and realize that all, all they, rather they pass and, and haven't captured the condition that I, I should have ca caught. So I guess one of the questions I'd say, Keith, in that situation is, is how, how do you manage that situation? Like where, because I guess I, I had this question coming from one of the, one of the guys who just sort of started with this um, recently, you know, veteran, veteran coder, but just sort of asking about how you do things in the Node ecosystem. And I guess I said, well, look, my advice is, is let NPM decide at, at a module level in terms of how versions should be, use version ranges at a module level. But if, you, if you're talking about an app, you pin or, or whatever the case may be to, to lock those versions, versions down and, and then basically you, you at least know what you're doing. And, so in Rubyland, you bundle, you bundle lock file, right? Yep. yep. Um, so, so bundle yeah. locks is the equivalent of our shrink wrap. So okay. they shrink wrap every time. So gotcha. you, they've still got Semver for their packages, but they only upgrade explicitly. And I think that that's something that's a little bit different in the Node ecosystem. I'm not sure whether I'm starting to almost come around on on the, on the the Ruby idea of um, you know keeping the things you know locked down. Maybe. What does Maven do? I I won't talk about Maven. <laughs> I have PTSD of yeah. Or right. just one more thing. Uh, and I think the the shrink wrap idea is a, a lot more flexible than using like, fixed versions. I, I mean, well, I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's. Yeah. This is an ongoing discussion about shrink wrap. I think. Yeah. I think this is something we could cover in another show. But um, yeah. You know, right. Sorry, Torsten. I, I think it's a whole different story than uh, in, in Nodeland than in Ruby, right? Because in Ruby, you don't have that deep dependency trees like we have in Node. So if you lock a module down. Right, like that means most likely you're going to get the exact same code, versus in Node, even if you lock that module's version down, well, actually, if you lock the version exactly down, you probably get the same code, except if that module has ranges of its dependencies, so you may make it different dependencies, right, for for that module. The thing is, what what I would suggest, uh, use some sort of range specifier, uh, either the caret or the tilde, depending on how. Seriously, we're not going to go into that. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to point out about that is that you see the original version that you installed. It's, it's always there, right? Like it says tilde 1.0.1. That means when you actually installed that module the very first time and when everything was still working, it was 1.0.1. So if you're trying to triage why, why something is broken, you can't just like, you know, install that exact version and see if it, if it works again. That's an important thing. Don't use version uh, ranges like one a greater one, a smaller zero, a two, because then you have no information about what that original version was. We are finished with summer. Okay, let's take a quick break for our second sponsor. Big shout out to CodeShip. CodeShip is free hosted continuous delivery service focused on simplicity and usability. Set up continuous integration in a few easy steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy to cloud services like Roku, AWS, Modulus, and Aditsa. CodeShip makes continuous delivery so simple, setup only takes a minute. You can sign up now and get 100 builds a month and five project projects for free. This should allow startups, freelancers, and small teams to get started with continuous delivery. For anyone who needs more builds and projects, use the discount code NOTEUP and get 20% off for the first three months. Head over to codeship.com slash NOTEUP to get started and be sure to follow them on Twitter at Codeship. So is there anyone that wants to come up from 
uh, in our audience and ask any questions or make comment on any of those topics about the different types of testing, uh, mocking, stubbing, etc. Semver, preferably not. Anyone got any questions they want to bring up? Just uh, introduce yourself and, and ask your question. All right. So I'm Kenny. I actually work with Damon, and that's why he's giggling there in the corner. <laughs> so I've got a question that I'm sure everybody's going to love, and that's, you know, as software engineers, we want to make nice, reliable code, and we want to use all the tools available to us to be able to do that. So there's another T word that I think we should talk about, which is types. What do you guys think about types? Uh, is that to do with tests? Uh... Yeah. Is yeah, it? well, you talked about using tests as documentation. I think types also fill a, fill a similar niche. So if you have a type language, you mean? Yep. Yeah, so that's like one unit test you have for free. That's it. Like, it makes sure that yep. you have the right types, the end, right? And then you still have to test that with all these types, everything is still working as you expected, right? So it's, it's somewhat of a a gain, right? I mean, and also, actually, I think types are more important actually to give you like IDE tooling, maybe like better. Like, so if you can't remember method names or whatever, they, they give you that. They, they probably have other advantages too, but for testing, it's just one more test. That's it. I would have to disagree on that. There are plenty of other ways that you can use types to restrict the sort of programs that you can implement such that you can only implement certain programs that are correct. Oh, come on. Well, it's, on. it's okay. Like, cause, I mean, I, I, know, I know the environment that, that, that we have at NICTA, and it's one that, that is definitely, and it's good, like, because the, the whole point of CampJS, at least, is to be, you know, welcoming to, to sort of polyglot <laughs> languages. But, no, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not meant to be patronising at all, because, because the thing is, like, the reality is I, I, I've seen the advantages of some of these languages firsthand. And, and there really is, like, and un unfortunately it comes down to, to what is a type, and that's a whole, whole other discussion. Because, no, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's just not probably even worth getting into in this sort of context. What I will say, there is some, I would say that it's worth having a look up at times, maybe not, not necessarily at types, but the way other languages do testing, whether that's Ruby or some other languages, and there's certainly some property-based testing things that we could use in JavaScript that we don't. Like where we're basically, like like you sort of made uh, alluded to Tim that when you use a mock, mm -hmm. you're basically smoothing things out, and and you kind of like the reality is that when we write a test, we're we're only using our own breadth of imagination to to do our tests, and and that's a bit a bit not quite right, and and things things pop up that we miss. So so there's definitely other testing things that JavaScript could use to to make things better, but I, I don't think it's worth going down the types path at this stage. By the way, uh, when you say types, you're talking about when you say you say something about like proving about your code, but you're not talking about Haskell, right? Are you, okay, are you a, so, so hold on. So, so Haskell is not just about types. The, like, I, I don't, I don't want to get into this discussion, but like Java or C sharp is not. Has, you can't even compare it to like uh, the, the the correctness that you mentioned. That that's in Haskell. Yes, it's not. Has, has you cannot just say it's related to types. Yeah, opinion. definitely. There's lots right. of lots right. of different so types in, of types, uh, and I think there's a lot of I don't want to put Haskell up on a pedestal well, the, the here because there's lots of things missing from that as well. Right. I mean, so the reason why print proved the correctness of Haskell is mainly because it's purely functional and there's no state change. That it's not just because of the types. And actually, the types, when it, since we're talking about testing, I worked in, so that's why this rant is kind of stuck in my throat. I worked in C Sharp and Java for, for, for too long, probably. And when I was writing tests, I spent about 
I spend more time convincing the compiler that what I'm doing is okay for this test, or like that, yes, you can use this as, as a replacement of this thing, although, yeah, the types don't exactly match or whatever. I spend more time doing that than actually writing the test. I've jumped through so many hoops in those type languages to write some you know, reasonable tests, and I don't want to go back. Yeah, okay. Well, we might, thanks, Kenny, for your question. And it's okay, we're used to Haskell programmers putting Haskell on a pedestal, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> The exact opposite of that. No, no, that's fine. No, so I, I look, the way I see it is that in JavaScript, we've actually exchanged types for other advantages. So we've changed them, change, we've switched types out for productivity, for the flexibility. We have lost some things in the process of not having types, but we have gained other things that other languages don't have. Um, I, I think, like, just, I mean, he's coming from a, a, ha a, a Haskell perspective, and I, you know, I'm going to just come at it from an ActionScript perspective, because that's what I used to do. ActionScript has optional types, and it's like best of both worlds. If you want to turn that stuff off, just turn it off. If you don't want this thing to be typed, just don't. Uh, the Haskell has optional typing, does it? In Haskell, I think it's something that's coming. It's implicit type conversion, so it feels quite optional sometimes. But I think it's something that's coming in. I think it was supposed to be in ES4, actually. But it, at some point in the future, we might end up with optional types, and I, I, I quite like that idea because you know if you if you if you want types, just put the damn things in. Because I was recently doing like GLSL, and it, you know that compiler can tell you a lot about your code. And I'm like, how did it know? I'm like, ah, oh, it knows types. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Tim, I, you've become I just, a lazy JavaScript review. I totally disagree about the ActionScript thing. So with ActionScript, I thought it was the worst of both worlds uh, because. So <laughs> the, only, the only place where you really didn't use types was when you were parsing a JSON message. Because once you went down either path, like the rest, that, that the whole application had to, you couldn't just mix and match all, all over the yeah, place. You had to right. decide either using types or you don't use types, and you usually ended up using types, and then you were in the same land, and they, the, the ActionScript has a bunch of problems, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the, the whole type thing is, is just not great in ActionScript. I, actually, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, we're going to leave that topic there. Let's look now at browser testing and the state of browser testing. Now, there's two types of browser testing that I can see. There's running your JavaScript unit tests in the browser, and then there's like browser UI testing. Is that accurate, do you think, Damon? Do you want to take that? Is that is that a good way of looking at Look, what there is? Yeah, I guess I guess that's that's definitely fair, Rod. I mean, you know, I, I definitely care more about the the first one than the, than the latter, but I can see it being you know really important, especially when you're talking about the the latter being you know important when you are delivering something to a customer that's expecting something to appear on screen, and and then if you're deploying something, especially in say a continuous deployment environment where you need to have confidence that what's being sent out to the customer is absolutely what they expect. So uh, I wouldn't say my level of experience with the second one is, is very great, but I can certainly happily talk to the, the first one and, and some, maybe I'm not quite as, uh, I've got quite as much fire in the belly as, as Torsten did with that last thing, but. <laughs> but well, Keith, you, you, you operate, you're, you're a fan of continuous deployment. Mm -hmm. How does, how does um, like UI testing feed into that? Because you have to have the confidence that yeah, you Yeah, well, if, if, if I had it my way, I would do integration and browser testing for everything. For everything, I would absolutely do it, but I can't because speed is an issue. So there are two aspects to that. I, I, the other thing I want is, I used to actually do this. I used to do browser tests for pretty much everything. There was a language in Ruby called Cucumber, 
which was the rage for a period. I think uh, it's got a syntax called Gherkin. I assume that node has its own. Like, yeah, there's a cucumber package in. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, and that does browser testing for everything. You would explain your tests like, as a user, I would like to log in and buy stuff. That would be your test. Justin's shaking his yeah. head. <laughs> well, but it, it grew out of fashion pretty quickly, right? Because it was just really slow. And, and when you had an error, more often than not, it would, the error would be, I expected success on the page, but it wasn't there. Yeah. So your error messages were just completely crap. And then someone said to me, like, your error messages should help you in debugging tests. Like, it should have said, expected the total to be 20, but got user.save is undefined. And that's an actual error. Like, and, and that can help the developer go find the problem and fix it. But I don't know. I, I've mostly built web apps my entire career. And, and web apps is what make my company's money. At the end of the day, like, my money is from a customer's pocket. And the way that the customer interacts with me is via a web browser. So it makes sense to kind of test where they interact. But I can't because it's too slow. Now, I say that, I wonder if browser testing was fast, would we do like unit tests, if it was fast and accurate? No. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Like, did you ever give the output of the cucumber tests to the business people. <laughs> Never. Okay. That's why yeah. I stopped so using it. So that's like, yeah, cucumber, as far as I see, it was another pipe dream that just caused extra work for developers. Because like what, what happened with cucumber, you had this extra level of indirection, right? You, you defined your, your, your tests in this weird DSL language. And then that would map to some Ruby file that would be somewhere, which would use a global world that would be somewhere else. And then you basically wrote RSpec tests, right? So, so why not just only write the RSpec tests so you at least don't yeah. have the direction? And RSpec, that's a whole different story because it, it changes APIs too to make it more humanized. And like the whole thing about the humanizing thing is, is a whole thing that, that I'm not a huge fan of. Like, like RSpec would say, you know, that the, the API may say has, the method name may call, be called has, and then but in our spec, then you would write should have. Like suddenly the word actually changed to make it look like a sentence. And so if you're trying to learn a library, like I was learning Capybara, then suddenly like the, you, you, you had to switch back and forth between the API name because it would change. So that, that brings us down a different, uh, this path about trying to make things readable like a book versus just look like code and jumping through a bunch of hoops to make that happen where the only person who's ever going to look at this is the programmer who reads code all day and can probably parse an assert statement faster than should not be in dot the range dot off dot whatever, right? Oh, yeah, and uh, I, I totally agree. We could have a, a great argument on the aspect syntax, but I won't. I'll just, I'll just win the argument and say that it's better. So, but, uh, no, and Cucumber was crap, right? Like, I spent way more time maintaining the regular expressions than I ever did actually writing. So I'm 100% on that in, in that camp. What was the idea with, with those kinds of the high-level BDD kinds of things that the idea was that we could pass them off to middle management and they would, exactly. take, they, would, they would take some of our workload and, and we wouldn't have to take so much responsibility? Yeah, they would write them for us. We would give them, like, the, the, here's a like, series of, of steps you can use, write us tests, and we will implement them. And we will make that green, and when that's green, we've done the feature you asked for. Cool ball. You, you could also sort of see it like, like a, because I, I was just thinking then, like, why can't you just put a comment at the top of your test that says the same thing? But the cool thing about that, well, maybe one benefit of it is that um, it's like, 
if you change the code, or if you change the comment, it reflects in the code. So it's kind of got like a little bit of linkage there, but uh, it's not very valuable, is it really? But no, like so. So yeah, coming back to the the question, it's about browser testing, and so there's a couple of options in browser testing. In in Ruby, we use Phantom JS has is is making a, that's probably the most popular option now. We've we've also got Capybara WebKit, which is based off the Qt WebKit thingy majiggy, and then we've got Selenium. Now we all used to use Selenium, but the problem with Selenium is that when you're writing code and you run the test, you get a browser just pop on your pop up in your face, and that's that's pretty pretty annoying. Which is why I think we've started moving to the head the headless browsers, just because it's it's just works better and they're much easier to install in, yeah. in environments. Uh, Damon, I think you've got the same beef with headless and phantom testing well, as just, I do. Just one thing, I just it makes me wonder why browsers, like, I mean, how does a browser test itself? Now, I've looked at this <laughs> and their system is just as garbage. They actually have to go through this pain, but they actually have the option to fix it. Like, if you go look at the, like the Chrome test suite, it's, you know, it's as garbage as booting Chrome up with a particular web. It's 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 super. They're not. They don't have any facilities in there to, to you know, do fancy stuff. And it, it it's not good. I don't know that. I don't know that their systems are bad. I think their systems require a fair bit of onboarding to, to make them work in but the way why that. Why can't they're we do it like like headless and fast and well, all that kind it, of? Well, it comes down to and, and you know, it, it's good that Keith mentioned Phantom JS and you know the. The issue, like, and, and I guess when I started with doing WebRTC stuff, I had the, the same position that probably everyone else had, and that's, oh, I'll, I'll go try this in, and run this in PhantomJS. And the reality is that, that PhantomJS is, is, does not represent any kind of reality. There, there is no, it's, you know, it's, it's essentially QT WebKit, and I guess that's as close as maybe Apple Safari. Um, but you're With not JavaScript runtime that comes from nowhere. Like yeah, it's it's, it's just not representative of what we're actually running, you know, in in production. So there's definitely like I'm I'm pretty lucky in the fact that I'm I'm running on Linux. I don't know what running these things on OS X is like because, you know, I, I tend to just use things like Testling. Um, I find Zool to be exceptionally good for testing. And once you're using things like Tape for for describing things, like I can drive a browser exceptionally well, all with 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 completely you know. Just normal sort of things that look like tests, but the, the browser is is running to to exactly. It's just it's just my slave, and and I'm running it however I want. I'm quite happy using Travis and and using some of the Matrix stuff to basically run different versions of browsers. Like because one of the big things um, there's just so many aspects to this. Like even if you're using Source Labs, and Source Labs do a great job. They're fantastic, but you know when you start ending up in territory like WebRTC where you're basically, like, I have different problems to everybody else, as, as I think you're sure all aware. <laughs> but but the, the main one is that, that you guys, all, a lot of you are, are caring a lot about backward compatibility, that, that you can test on, you know, older things and your stuff still works on older things. The, the, my, my greatest fear is that the next version of Chrome gets released and everything that I've done to date breaks. So, and that will just happen because the Chrome stables roll out and, and, and everyone just gets it, which is great. You know, that's, that's the world we should live in. But I need to know what, what's going to happen when that next version of Chrome lands. So Source Labs don't really cater for that. Most of the browser, like hosted browser solutions don't cater for that. So I'm, but the great thing is if, if, you can, if you can work a shell script and, and understand some of the basic nature of like headless you know, displays and things in Linux, which everyone, thanks to things like Docker, we've all got access to now, we really can start to up our game. 
And I guess, you know, I think that's the stuff that, like, for me at least, I've been learning over the last 12 months. Like, the, there's other things like, man, why am I having to write? Like, most of my code I write as tests. It's, I write way more tests than anything else. Which is, which is, you know, one of those frustrating things. But, yeah, PhantomJS does sort of make my blood boil a little bit. I think PhantomJS might make sense because, you know, it's like simple. If you're using something like jQuery and, you, yeah, you're not using modern features, if you're using, no, what? No, it's well said. <laughs> <laughs> but as in, yeah, as in jQuery, like, uh, like you know, smooths over all the browser stuff. Like, if, if you are using kind of like common denominator technology, it probably makes sense to use PhantomJS. But if you're trying to do anything a little bit fancy, you, you can have, you know, maybe it's a little bit more dodgy running it in PhantomJS. Uh, I mean, I can't use it because, you know, some of the stuff I'm doing is you, you does, you know, web component stuff and, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, same problem. First, I want to second your suggestion for Zool. So shout out to Roman for the good work. One thing we shouldn't forget in this whole discussion is so like, it's also about how you structure your code. right? If you have, let's say you're using Backbone, and you have all your calculations in the middle of your view, of course, that's going to be freaking hard to test. Because you're maybe even going to have to load some HTML or something to test that in the worst case. Or at least you have to spin up that view, and you're dealing with, with a bunch of state in that view. And maybe the view is trying to reach to something that then you also have to have there. Just pull your functions out. Like, have free, no logic in the view. Like, there's no reason why there has to be any logic. The, the view should just basically call functions and emit events. That's all it should do. And, and then you can pull these functions out. And before you realize it, you see that, oh, that function, that does actually something quite generic. Someone else might need that. And then you can just publish it to NPM. And by the way, if that function doesn't access anything that's only in the browser, you can even just test it in, in Node. Right. So yeah. that's a big thing. Yeah, I, I think that as soon as you start building apps like that, you know, I mean, you, you're making thing, you're making your code cleaner. You're not coupled to any particular implementation. I find that if, if I'm, you know, trying to, because I just hate doing browser testing, you know, I, so I try to stay away from it. Like I try to keep all my logic out of it. But in, you know, in, in doing that, I don't need to boot up a browser to, to test most of my logic. What I was going to say was, there's another thing with, with the tests, though. And uh, maybe, uh, Keith, you might have some opinions about this. Because you were saying that you, you like to test everything. And maybe there's a, there's a point, and Rod can stop me if I'm steering the conversation off course. But when you're writing tests, writing a lot of tests, each test decreases your ability to change that code. It kind of locks that code down. It sort of con concretes it. And one of the problems that I've had in the past is over-testing and just writing way too many tests for something which wasn't even like deployed yet and then you know you go you go you build a you build a package to solve your problem you write all your tests and then you realize oh this isn't you, know, you got to use that package in some other package because you you know you're shaving yaks and you realize it's completely wrong does and some assumption you've made and what happens is like you've written all these tests and suddenly they need to be completely rewritten that nothing makes sense anymore and You've just wasted a whole bunch of time. What I'm trying to say here is that tests are code as well. Don't don't treat them like as if they're just you know more tests is better. Yeah. They they make it harder to change your code and they you know they add to the amount of you you still end up having to keep all that stuff in your head at some point. And one of the things I've been trying to do is you know only testing just the small pieces which are. Uh, the, the most important things, because if you've got a nice lean test suite, which is like, and this is a good thing for like integration tests, can sometimes cover a huge amount of logic in one go. And 
you've got some utility function, you don't need to test whether that utility function will break if it gets some funny value because you've written all the code that uses that utility function and you're just not going to send it an unsensible value. Maybe if you're writing software which has you know, got to make sure that people don't die, maybe at that point you would... I've totally derailed it, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I don't. Maybe if you, if you, hang on, if, if, yeah, if, you, if you're writing important yeah. software, it's probably important to like test the whole thing. But you know, most of the time, we are, if we're just writing UI stuff, keeping it like all high level and, and only writing tests for the stuff that you think is gonna change is important. Another one, almost, almost done. <laughs> when, when I'm building stuff, uh, I, I find that, I mean, yeah, tests are a really great way of designing and building stuff. It, like, it gets my head right and helps me, helps me, I use it as like a writing tool, but you can end up drowning in your own tests. Yeah. So, I don't know. I Ke Keith, I think you need a right of reply, because he's basically advocating for less tests. No, no, no. So, when I, so let me clarify. When I said uh, I would test everything, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer of not testing half of what I write, right? Like I, I built a product once and the first time I wrote a test was when I wrote the billing system. Mm. This product was in production for quite a while. I had no customers, but the first customer came along and said, I would like to pay for your software. I'm like, great, I'm gonna write a billing system and I should probably write my first test about now. Because up to this point, I had, this was my side project. And by the way, here's a, here's a pro tip. If you're writing a side project, just don't write tests. And if, you, if, you're, if you're like building a, a tool on the side and you like one day this is gonna be a product, just don't write tests because you spend way more time writing tests than actually trying to build a product. But that's more about yeah. business Similar. and product. And, all, and that's all I was going to say too. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, Tim, all you were saying is consider your audience like when you're writing something. Like think about if this is for you or something you're going to depend on and no one else is going to really use it. Like even if it's critical like in parts, like there's, there's stuff right down the lower stack of the stuff that I'm writing now. It hasn't got half the tests that are much up higher of the stack because it consumes, it's consumed by those other things and no one's going to have a use for it. Torsten, what, what, what can you just have an input into that? So, first of all, it's not that freaking hard. Just write a small module, <laughs> and while you're writing it, don't write tests yet. Write an example of how you're using it. I always have, and sometimes I forget it in there, if module.parent equals null, run this code in here, in, in, in the bottom of my module, which basically is the code that I'm using to exercise the code that I'm actually writing at the moment. And so I look at my output in my terminal, and, and I manually inspect if it's doing what it needs to be doing. And since it's already an example, I already defined the API, and of course I don't want to write a stupid example, so I write a good API. And then when I'm done with that, and it does what it's supposed to do, I take that example, I paste it into a test, and then I have my test, and I'm done, and then I copy and paste the output from the terminal in there. So that test took me like, zero seconds to write, right? And I don't care if like, I may have to copy and paste another output in there if the, the whole thing breaks because even just a little thing changes in there and everyone will tell you, at least like from, like, from the java.net world, don't do that, right? Like don't, don't make a test so brittle. Yeah, if it takes me like an hour to make it not brittle, but it takes me like five seconds the one time it became, it broke because it was brittle to fix, then it's probably a better use of my time. So, that, that's something right. that- Keith, do you want to finish oh, up here because- No, no, team, you've had your go. Keith, okay. was like, but, yeah. but I wasn't finished. Yeah. And no, one thing- You are, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so this, this, this sounds like there's two different types, right? I'm coming at this from very much a product web application type place. And it sounds like you're coming up from a like a, a library module type. No. No? I build okay, my applications with library as modules. And if my application needs another feature, it becomes another module. Right, OK. But uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we are all just professional string concatenators, right? 
Like, that's what we do. We, I have a way of concatenating strings, and you have a way of concatenating strings. And so there are different ways of testing those strings. You could, you could test the entire output of a HTML page if you wanted. Like, make sure, does this page have the exact same HTML as last time? That is probably the same way of testing. But like you said before, you, could, you can wrap those things up into much smaller functions and test much smaller portions of the HTML. I'm not quite sure if I was responding to something, but I just thought I would like to say professional string concatenator. <laughs> All right, let's take our final break for our third sponsor, Lyft Security. Building an application or a service is already hard enough, then dealing with security gets in your way. Security doesn't have to be painful, annoying, or frustrating, and you definitely don't have to summit the security mountain alone. Adam Baldwin and the team at Lyft Security want to guide developers in building more secure Node applications. They are the founders of the Node Security Project and already help secure tools that you use every day like GitHub and NPM. A core service Lyft provides is security assessments. An assessment helps identify and prioritize spots to improve security and mitigate risk, then offers recommendations and strategies for building more securely in the future. Lyft Security also provides in-person and online training to help you and your team understand common vulnerabilities, their impact, and how to prevent them. If you're interested in bringing security-first mindset to your team's development process, contact the Lyft team at liftsecurity.io or liftsecurity on Twitter. Because uh, no, no, look, look, let's 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 draw a line under that one because we were actually on the topic of browser testing here, which I think is an important topic because whenever I go into the area of browser testing, I'm shocked at how terrible it still is and how Selenium is still the best thing you can use and how everything is built on top of Selenium for browser testing. What what is the go with browser testing and why is it not any better? Do we have any better tools than Selenium? Yeah, I think it, it's definitely out there. And as Torsten, you said, Zool's a good option. Isn't doesn't Zool Run on top of it, it like, runs on Source Labs, so which but, is Selenium. But that's okay because it does not run on Source Labs. Zool runs, runs by itself. Yeah, so yeah, using Selenium, doesn't it? No, no, Zool does not use Selenium. It uses the protocol that talk, the, the Source Lab talks, which no, is the that's, web. That's only web if you run it with protocol. Source Labs. But you can just run. Uh, you can just run any JavaScript in your in the browser and and and, and with the test. It's, it's basically just browser refires up your code, loads it into the browser, and your tests execute because you specified that. And it supports uh, multiple test uh, runners, uh, test, whatever you call those, tape, tap, mocha, it supports all of them. Okay. Uh, not tap, tape, obviously. Yeah, and, and the one thing that's good about, I think, that, that probably deserves the most recognition about Zool is that its documentation is excellent. So, you know, most of the things is, is where you do have it and, and what, you know, Tim's talking about sometimes and Rod, I think you're talking about sometimes too, is that you look at these tools that are offered and you're like, well, these are rubbish. And sometimes it's not that the tool is rubbish, it's the documentation's rubbish. No, the tools are pretty rubbish well, too. Well, yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> but I think, I think for Selenium's an option for running tests, but I think the way, even the way that Zool runs Selenium is just to get a browser up and running. It's not even to automate it using the web driver protocol. It's basically just, because it actually opens a local tunnel back to your own machine and is just looking at the, at the output. So, which is what, yeah, okay. No, but it, 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 I think it is, it is genuinely a little different. And I think the thing is, but the, the, the biggest strength about using something like Zool and Testling together is that you've got a lot of testing options and deployment options for testing because, and, and Testling's not very good at running, say, a small selective test, Zool is. So when I'm pushing to Travis, I'm always using Testling. But when I'm confused about something locally, I'll, I'll fire it up in Zool and run it locally. So this is largely talking about unit tests in the browser though, isn't it? You're not talking about UI tests, are you? I'm not. So, so Zool, 
how I have used it, right? I basically just use it to run, yes, unit tests. Like, but I mean, you can still put something in the page, right? You can add stuff to the page if you wanted to. So you can theoretically write kind of integration e tests with it. But the point is that that Zool is not bound to Selenium in any way. You can just open up a browser and it gives you URL and you just load that into your browser and it runs your tests. Or you can just run it as Phantom JS. Or if you run it with Sauce Labs, then it, you know, it uses a local tunnel. I don't see where it has to use Selenium to run it with Source Labs. The web driver, like Source Labs, is built on that whole ecosystem of Selenium web driver, etc. One of my biggest beefs here is that is it's not so much like because you do browser control is the big issue here for UI testing. Like it, you, like there's so many different browsers and there's all these mobile devices as well now. We need to control these things against our UI to have confidence that we can press the deploy button. And in continuous deployment, I think it's even more so um, the case that you need to have the confidence that this thing, you know, when I, when somebody requests this page, the sign up form is there and the button is available to press. And I, I th sorry, Rod, to interrupt. I think one of the things that was fundamentally wrong with the way we're doing integration testing before, because and I think this is what Torsten was saying too, that the line between integration and unit testing really doesn't have to be there. It, it is definitely quite fluid. And even the frameworks or the, the kind of ways that we're writing tests these days, you can, you can really use something like tape or, or mocker, or, I guess, to, to pretty much automate the flow of your whole application if you've, if you've basically written it right. You know, you don't you don't want to be saying click on this button and do this thing. No, it, it, no, it is I, actually I, true. I used to because believe this, but like, it is actually true. I, I can guarantee. Say, it. You did say that you hadn't written a, an actual app for five years. Well, and, and so, Tim, just, just for those listening, Tim no, no. is rubbing his head in in uh, frustration right now. But but see, one of the things is, but one of the things I have done is simulated like twenty five concurrent connections. Sure, with sure, sure. That, but that's, that's, that's very unit testing program. Yeah, exactly. That's only a couple of little things. What if you have to do that? While you're testing to make sure, like the UI is updating. And, so what like, would you be what would you be testing for? The Tim? Facebook connection still going, all this kind does, of stuff. Does Persona still work after yeah, Mozilla dropped exactly. the ball? The, 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 the problem is, is that when you when you actually have a real web page, there's a huge amount of state. And what we try to do when we break things up into modules is to reduce the amount of state that we have to be aware of. But when you actually deploy a real app, you end up with all the things. They suddenly come together, and I really, really wanted to make so. It so let's let's consider a quick scenario that, okay. that you do have something that basically you, you've executed an action on the page by, by calling the function as opposed to clicking on the button. Okay, sure. so you've done that to start with. Then you're expecting something to happen, probably within a certain timeout. So if you want to check that the target of some HTML has been rendered correctly, you could do that. If you want to make sure that the style has been applied correctly, you could do get computed style. There's nothing that you can't can't do programmatically yeah, sure. in in a test that is very much of an integration nature. You have to make the effort, but, but running it isn't the problem. It's, it's, it's people not making the effort, not thinking about the problem correctly. And, and unfortunately, yeah, you're right, I haven't written apps, mm. but if I was going to be writing apps, I'd write a whole swag of libraries for being able to go and target. But the this, this stuff already exists. You can, you can use but this. I, I Keith, Keith where do you fall on this? Yeah, so, so I think there's something that we are forgetting, and it starts with M, rhymes with, Even. Rhymes with annual. And it's manual testing, yeah. right? We can still manually test. If I'm writing a slider, I think we've all at some point written a JavaScript slider, like a little slider widget when they were cool. And I remember not writing a single test for it because how do you test the interaction of a slider? I could write a test to make sure when the mouse down event is triggered that it starts updating some X and Y value. Or I can Alt-Tab, Command-R, drag a little bit, and like, cool, that feels really nice. I, I think that. We're not going to ever, I don't think we'll ever live in a world in the next foreseeable future where everything can be automated. 
I think that if you if you decouple your code enough that you can, if you make a change here, all you have to do is manually test the one thing here. And I, I think that it's quite reasonable. Like you can get IE for free now. When Microsoft give out all the versions of Internet Explorer for free. You can get all the other versions of all your favorite browsers. It's a pain in the ass, but if, if there are any serious application, I think you'd probably have a QA engineer on your team whose job it is to test these things, to double check them before they go to production. I actually do agree. Since we had Haskell before, the, you know, already in the show, so the big thing about Haskell is that the 90% or so of your code is purely functional and can actually be proven to be correct or not. So that means if you have a bug, you know it cannot be in those 90% of code because you can prove it's not there. So you only have to look in the 10% of your code uh, where you, we have an IO monad or whatever and you're changing state. And I think that kind of aligns really with what you said, that basically you, you pull out as much code as you can into logical units that you can unit test or that you can test without uh, pain of driving your browser, and then you have only like really tiny little parts that connect it to the actual UI, like a slider, and 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 maybe you you write write a test. Maybe you you start with manually testing it, and if it breaks for the tenth time, then maybe you think of investing those three hours that it will probably take to to correctly test it, because that's also what people have to think about the investment of time to get these web-driven tests correct is, is maybe not worth it. Does anyone else agree with me that it's kind of depressing thinking that we have to engineer our apps this way because it is just so hard to automate driving browsers to I, test? Uh, I would or, say it's actually good that we're driven that way because it forces us to structure our apps. It's, that's what, what, what is said a bit about testing in general, that it drives us to define clear APIs and clearly modularize things and clearly make Basically, don't don't couple things too much and so on, and then don't keep state like crazy. It actually drives us to write really clean code, in my opinion. Okay. And also keeping like, uh, if 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 yeah, you keep everything that's breaking in the ten percent, you know that, and it's that, that's your UI. It also frees you to change your UI. You don't want to have to go like, you know, contact your your developers and change the test just because you want to change the border color on a button or something. And this is why I believe a lot of big enterprises end up with crappy websites for 10 years because they've probably got, you know, an because they've got a test. They've got. No, I don't think you're dreaming, Tim. UI infrastructure uh, testing system, which is making sure that it still looks that crap, uh, and it will continue to do that. It's a theory, but it's. I, I actually know some of those systems yeah. still look crap, just a little insider tip, look, because the brand guidelines for those particular <laughs> sites say that it must look crap because it yeah, looks too yeah. flashy, then the budgetness of the airline can, like, I'm not, I didn't say Okay, no, 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 okay. <laughs> look, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where we're driving green. Sorry. I, I, I guess I, to, just to sum up, and I, I, I understand Tim's frustration, but I, I think there is a path through this, and I think the path is, is absolutely there and it can be tackled. But I, I don't think, it, it, is, it is rough territory, but I don't think, you know, one of the things is I, I think we do have to move past, you know, basically saying click on button, expect to see this. And if anyone's still doing that, I think that's just okay. a massive so, mistake. So to, to end off this, this topic, can we, because one of the things when, uh, that I know from experience and I, I know I hear from a lot of other people is that they, they're developing an app and then they get to this sort of integration point where you've got a UI and you need to be able to verify it's, it, it's a certain amount of correctness before you hand it over to the customer. And the customer wants you, know, you to have certain, a certain level of testing. You, just, you want to have something that operates in the browser environment so that you can just, it's not just a YOLO, here you go. Um, <laughs> but can we, so 
as a resource for people who might be listening to this and people who are here now, do you guys want to list off some of the some of the go-to tools you've talked about already, and some of the other tools that you think are worth a look at, even if you don't use them, but um, you know are out there for browser testing? For server-side testing, since I would okay. say use tape or tab. For browser-side testing, I would also prefer tape. Uh, a lot of people are using Mocha, and I don't think we have enough time no, to get no, into that either. entire rant. But Mocha has has a, a nice UI, and it, 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 it is certainly mature in a lot of ways. But it also had a, has a lot of flaws that some people see. One of them being the globals, which makes it actually pretty hard to set it up correctly because you have to somehow magically register something in some script before your test can run. So I, I would I would I would prefer tape if you want to mock things and you're using Browserify, the proxy choir version for Browserify, which is called proxy choirify. Really good name, Tim. Very good, yes. Yes. So I would suggest that. Then if you, for the test driver, that's kind of up to you. There's Testum, there's Zool. I like Zool, but Testum is fine as well. There's also Karma. It depends on what you, I think Karma is maybe more made for Angular, Angular JS apps. Yeah. But look around, I and mean, there are constantly things popping up. So don't just, you know, go to the ones that have all the stars. Maybe just Try a new one uh, as well. There may be improvements there. Tim? Uh, look, I mean, I'm kind of the same boat. Like, uh, I've done Mocha, done Tap, done Tape. And I've, I, I even refactored an entire app over to Mocha. I was on, using Tape, refactored it to Mocha. And at the end of the day, I refactored it all back to Tape. It just didn't make any sense to, to continue using Mocha. I'm, I'm sorry, it looks nice, but like tape just keeps things like super simple, and and that's that's you know what you want in, in test. You just want simple stuff to, to under, you know make it easy to understand uh, what's actually happening because that helps you diagnose things. So tape. Yeah, and the only thing I'd add too, like if you do need pretty and you are addicted to pretty, then just pipe the output of tape or whatever it is into a pretty thing. Like force yeah, it. Force yeah. it. Uh, sorry, this yeah. is still this is still very server-side-y. Um, tape, tape, server-side and browser. Yeah, it so. is. So, but we're still holding, hovering at that unit testy thing. Is there any like you guys are really in the camp of don't go any any further above unit tests? And if you need to go further above unit tests, then you, you've done it wrong. Is that is that what I'm getting from you three? So in 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 Rubyland we have Capybara, and Capybara is a framework that gives you an API which is the lowest common denominator of Selenium, PhantomJS, and Capybara WebKit. So you say capybara.visit this URL, and it visits it. And if you can change the backend adapter for Selenium, PhantomJS, or the other one. And you can structure your Capybara test in such a way that it makes it really easy. For example, you could create a class that represents a page in your system. You create a class called login page. And you instantiate a new instance of the login page object, which will then visit the page for you. Login page dot username equals foo, and that will enter username equals foo on the page. That means that if you, you can use that same class quite a number of places throughout your integration tests in the browser, and if you change login page, you have to change it in one spot, which is quite nice. And a nice feature of Capybara screen, Capybara is there's, a, there's an add-on called Capybara screenshot. And when there's an error on the page, it actually will take a screenshot for you. And on CI, you'd be able to view it on your CI. So it was like, hey, it was supposed to equal 40, but it equals 60. And you can see on the page why equals 60. And that Capybara screenshot is a great tool to help you debug. I hope Node has something like now, that. I think there's a good thing there. Is like, what would you guys use to fill in a form and click on a button? 
Well, one thing I want, but so I think like in, uh, I, I'm not aware of any JavaScript tools that that do this. However, like you know, like to learn enough Ruby syntax to write tests with Capybara is not that hard. However, I want to point one thing out, and that's actually that can bite you pretty hard. Is that if you're assuming you try, if you're trying to test that something is there, for instance, and you um, like a button, right? And you can use XPath in, in Capybara, or you can use uh, some Jake. You can use to CSS. Or CSS, but the thing is, if suddenly, like whatever you, however you're trying to get at that element is not valid anymore, but but everything is actually fine. Like maybe you change your HTML, or maybe you, you remove the class or something. And I've heard of people actually adding classes that are just for testing that the designer knows not to remove. That's kind of a pain because suddenly your test breaks, although the button is actually there, just because Capybara can't find it. Or no, like you you would go capybara.click button login. And so you wouldn't even worry about the right. Class but anymore. what if you suddenly have to test in another language? Now the button is no longer has has no longer login on. on oh the, yeah. Right? Well, you could just go cabrero.click log click click button login, and then the the login page class that I spoke about could handle that particular language case. Or you can go iatnn dot like there are but ten the, different ways. That's to start a lot that. of like a lot of tests, right? Just you know for something which you can have a quick glance at and like oh yeah that's right you know that that exists. Oh yeah, you um, could you could alt tab like command r refresh that looks correct and then move on with your life. Maybe we should like do something with like uh, what's that mechanical Turk or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I've thought I've thought about that seriously in the past. Like QA but, as a service. Yeah. QA. I'm yeah. sure I'm sure people do. Oh, it. it exists. It absolutely yeah. exists somewhere. But so, okay. Tape, Look, yeah. just in terms of tools, has anyone tried Dalek JS? No, so that's not, that's one that's supposed to be in JavaScript. I, I'd like to hear how that goes for people. Maybe it's a, a good thing. Anyone know of Dalek.js? No? Okay, well, that's what I'm putting in the show notes. Hopefully somebody can look that up and find some interesting stuff. Another one I wanted to point out was something by another Australian, Christopher Gifford, called Behavior Assertion Sheets. And this is a, it's a fairly new sort of idea that he's come up with, but I think it has really interesting potential for asserting state of pages, state of web applications. It's, it's sort of a, a DSL for describing how a, a page should be at a particular time using CSS-like syntax. That's, that's one that people should check out. Anything else you want to put in the show notes for checking out for, for um, browser testing? So since we talked about kind of QA, right, and the main manually testing, the problem usually with manual testing is that, you know, you see something is broken, but you don't know exactly when it broke. So if everyone, anyone wants to help me, I started writing a tool that helps you with that. It's called SpinUp. And the idea was that uh, for each GitHub release that, that's that has a tarball, basically, it will, it will pull that down and it will pipe that into a Docker container and it will launch that and have different iframes so you can see your app at all kind of different versions at the same time in the browser. So if a QA person finds a problem, they can then just easily load that up and, and, and find out, oh, the button was still working here and now you have much less commits to look through in order to figure out where the problem is. So if you go that route, that would definitely help you find your, your, your bug quicker. But I never got finished with this module, so I want to kind of plug that here, I it's guess. On in, it's on, in, it's on, uh, it's on GitHub my GitHub. Or? It's called SpinUp. You know. There is another tool that I just remembered. I think it's done by one of the news organizations. And what it does is in your test suite, you define key pages. And as it goes through your test suite, it will take a picture of each key page and then compare the pixels to the previous screenshot that it took. And if something changed, like if there was a 95% change in pixels, then it will fail the test and then give you the screenshots. And so that's, that's quite 
it's, it's brittle, especially when you're changing stuff really quickly, but it can be effective. And I think sometimes those tools are necessary, Keith, because I think, I think those where, where you're describing those particular cases, they're the things that, that you can't test. Like, I, I, nothing that you sort of talked about before, Tim, I was like, yeah, I could test that. I, I, I could imagine a way to test it. But, but when it's between the browser rendering engine, like once it's up from that point up, that you don't really have a way to basically say, get me that pixel and tell me that. But you know, you do with screenshotting tools and, and yeah. doing those sort of diff algorithms on it. So that, that sounds like something that's worth doing to me. Look, I, I think we might um, wrap up here. There's a bunch of other stuff I wanted to cover, but are there any questions or comments quickly about browser side testing that people want to throw in here? Yeah, Luke's itching. Come on. Come on, Luke. Come up here with the microphone. The nice thing about uh, that I like about CampJS is that there's this connection of back-end and front-end, no JavaScripters, and, and we all get together and we have our common rants and you know, we look at each other funny sometimes because we have different attitudes on things. But getting some of the inputs on, on these kinds of issues is really helpful at a venue like CampJS. Oh, yeah. So my name is Luke Brooker. And, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> We have like QA guys at work and anyway, and they do find they do Selenium tests and they do find a bit. So I do kind of find them useful. We're also looking at Protractor though because we're doing some Angular stuff, which has been looking pretty good. But the other thing was oh yeah, and also the with responsive design, the, the screenshot stuff is really, we found is really good too. And that's like one of the big things I've seen. And then the one that I still test is like kind of UX testing where like developers will do things and they'll like it's you would never be able to test it but it's actually just a horrible experience when they actually something is too slow or doesn't move right and that's that's still not going to be automated sort of thing so there's always there's always going to be like different varies degrees of different things but i think you probably did mention a lot of them anyway but yep thanks luke anyone else want to add anything or question or comment just on that, I worked with QA engineers once, and uh, they found some bugs in the software that I would never have dreamed to try. They would sometimes like put stupid characters in stupid input boxes. They would put like Unicode in there, and they would break everything. I'm like, I wouldn't even thought to have put an emoji in there and see what happens. And yet, like an emoji somehow broke everything. So QA engineers, they, they, they're very, very useful. Hey, I'm Michael. I use Testling for all my modules, and I really like it. And I guess I'd be wondering, like why I'd use Zool or Source Labs. Like, do you guys prefer things? Local. Oh, actually, and hosted. <laughs> yeah, I think you're in a similar camp to me, and and I think you can you can use both. I, I don't, you know, and that's one of the great things about those two particular tools that that once you've got them set up, apart from you know configuration, testing in in package.json or or a, or a Zool.yaml file, it, there's nothing else to do. You can basically take your whole test suite, and it will work across both. So feel free to, to chop and choose. You know, I think you can, you've, you're one of the liberated people that can actually make those choices. Not everyone's so lucky. Yeah. I'm, I'm still not sure, like, what does Zool have that like, made you, or did you start out using testing? No, I, I started out using, well, I started out, I was using tape a lot, and then I, I started using Zool. I came across some, some limitations in Zool, so I used testling. But, but one of the things that's really good about Zool, or at least I find, is that I find testing exceptional for running a whole test suite on, a, on something like Travis. I find that to be very, very useful. But say when I'm testing locally, testing is not so good at being able to say cherry pick a file that you wish to test. You know, you, you put in your sort of testling test and you might save the file. So, you know, generally in Substack examples of star.js, I tend to go with an all.js and then manually require in what I want. 
but I think if you go for those approaches, then you can start, like with Zool, you can basically say, go test this file. And, and it's really useful. I discovered something the other day with, because you can do, in the latest version of NPM, when you're doing test scripts, you can pass additional arguments after the test script. So you can type like npm test dash dash and then additional arguments. This is new, you couldn't do this before. And if you get a bit smart with the script that you actually have in there, you can pass them in as positional arguments into your test script. So uh, that's something which I was just playing with the other day. So it allows you to say npm test and it'll test everything or npm test such and such and it'll just test a single thing. So Should probably add here that of course, none of this works on Windows. Oh, yeah. yeah, none works on Windows, yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Okay, look, we're going we're gonna to do a uh, final section here, which is plugs. Anything you want to draw our attention to? I'll start. I'm watching Twin Peaks at the moment. That's a great show. I didn't have, actually didn't know how good it was. But also, I run a startup called BuildBox, and it's a continuous integration service. The benefit is you bring your own test workers, and I kind of handle the orchestration and everything else. So if you like running... Jenkins or those other sorts of self-hosted ones, but you don't really want to deal with Jenkins, then you should check out BuildBox. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I built a thing the other day. I don't know. I'd like more feedback about it. Maybe if I can find a way to... I'm really just speaking to McCullough and Hugh, actually. But I've mentioned it a few times, but they keep palming me off. I built a thing. It, it allows you to do... I'm trying you do, do realise you've been keeping them busy with preparing know, for the I workshop know, for I this? Know, yeah. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I want to set it up so that, okay, on a previous podcast, we learned that some of the other browsers aren't implementing OpenCL. Uh, it's like the open compute, like for general purpose computing on a GPU. They're not implementing that because you can implement it in the GPU. But I, I thought I would try that out and see how that went. I don't really know much about this stuff. I thought I'd try it out, and I built a thing which was supposed to theoretically allow you to do arbitrary computation on the, the GPU. I, I, I only spent like, you know, I don't know, 24 hours on building it. So it's not very robust yet. And you can only really do like uh, pretty simple mathematics with it. But yeah, I built this thing called salt mine. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it's a thing called salt mine. And yeah, the idea is you can plug in a bunch of, you know, mathematics um, and it will you know, run it all on the, the GPU. You plug in two sets of arrays, and they become like, uh, it'll do like matching on you know, the first element with the of the first array, first element of the second array, match them up, and it'll, it'll sort of allow you to do uh, computation on those things. And it'll, you can support up to four arrays, and you can do math. Anyway, turns out it's, it's kind of slow. It's not faster to do it on the GPU unless you're doing like about three inches of mathematics. So uh, I'd be interested in knowing more about how to. Uh, this is a crap plug. I'm sorry. Salt mine on GitHub. Salt mine on GitHub. Just go have a look at it. It's gonna be like over there with jQuery. <laughs> <laughs> Twin Peaks. Dawson, you give me a plug. All right. So I want to plug CampJS and Australia. So I was like 24 hours on the plane, but it was totally worth it. So. Everyone who's listening to this podcast, not from Australia, should totally come here. There are ferns that are bigger than you. There are birds that you have never seen in your life. And then there are things that look like kangaroos, but they're not. And they're small and they're jumping. It's awesome. So that's my first plug. The other plug is read a book about other people that were programmers like like 60 years, well, not 60, but 40 years ago, maybe. Like Start with Hackers by Steve Levine. It's like greatly inspiring to read how, how these things came about that we're using today and how people were struggling back then and enjoying themselves back then, the same we are. 
And my last plug is the workshopper and the whole Node School thing. You should check that out. And definitely like check out the WebGL uh, school. Out. Check out Learn UV. I'm going to give that tomorrow. First time is a LibUV workshop. So check that out. That's also on GitHub. And that's all my plugs. Yeah, I guess for me, I'd, I'd I'd go back to plugging stuff that I usually plug, but not but not on on something like NodeUp, and that's and that's things like pull streams, you know, really really good ways of of building applications and and just composing things in, in JavaScript, which I think, you know, it's Dominic Tarr's stuff. Dominic's great. He he goes and obviously looks at what everything else happens in the world in other languages, and and I think intelligently brings those back to JavaScript, and and really shows us that well ES6 is going to be kind of nice but you know what is it really going to let us do that we can't already do no no, no don't don't pick up the mic this is not an ES6 show um, so uh, Damon I think you did a, a talk at Web Directions about this stuff and we might link to that in the show notes because it's uh, good stuff my plug is simply to thank Tim for all the work that he's put in on CampJS and I'd like to record that on NodeUp just because it's been an epic effort for him lots of strain to pull this thing together and he doesn't get enough thanks like we give him a lot of thanks, but he doesn't get enough to, for, for the amount of work that he puts in. So, round of applause for, for Tim. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. And that's, that's it for our, uh, our recording. Thanks for sticking around, everyone that hung around until the end. That was a, a pretty long recording, but uh, I think very valuable. So, thanks, everyone.